come back this Lord's Day to pick up on our study of the God of all comforts and this Lord's Day focusing on our heavy load laid on Jesus. And if you recall, God comforts His people primarily by forgiving our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, reconciling us to Himself. Judgment is taken away. An everlasting life is promised. In Hebrews 2, Christ as God incarnate in human flesh is revealed both as the sacrifice to save His people from the power of death and as the perfect high priest to make reconciliation to God for us. Jesus knows by His personal human experience our troubles and trials and temptations which He suffered for our sake that He might save us and sustain us and comfort us. Besides the end of Hebrews 2, there are at least two more times in the book where Christ's temptations and suffering in His humanity for our sins are urged as proof that He is a faithful high priest for us and that He can comfort and sustain us in our temptations and trials. He understands our infirmities and temptations and was tempted like we are yet without sin. So the writer of Hebrews urges his readers, do not waver in trusting in Jesus because He understands our plight. In fact, His sinlessness is the very reason we need Him as our high priest. He needs no sacrifice for sin Himself. But He knows how much we do. He overcame every temptation to sin, but we do not. And so He faithfully presents His sacrifice to take away our sin. He is not impervious to the feeling of our infirmities, but rather was tempted in all points like we are. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The writer relates, that phrase is a translation of the Greek word from which we derive the word sympathize. But Christ never used His mighty power to provide for His own wants even when He was tempted by the devil to do so. In His humanity, He must rely upon God, His Father, to provide what He needed as He taught us to do. He would not take a shortcut to satisfy His physical needs in His body that was not available to His people. The devil wanted Jesus to step outside the limits of humanity in His temptation so that Christ would not be able to sympathize with us in our times of need. The devil urged Jesus to prove himself Messiah by forcing God's hand in keeping a promise to protect Messiah from physical harm. But Christ would not tempt God by abusing God's promise to him as Messiah. It would be presumptuous to act recklessly in order to vindicate himself as Messiah, even though no doubt it would have miraculously proved to unbelievers that Jesus is who he claims to be. Presuming on God's promises to us is a major area of our temptation and sin. Just because God has promised to provide for us does not excuse us to act recklessly and irresponsibly. The devil promised to give Jesus rule over the whole world if only Jesus would bow down and worship Him. Here the devil tried to dissuade Jesus from carrying out his noble, tragic ministry in which the people must reject Him. And He would be put to death as our sacrifice. According to the devil, Christ could short-circuit all that trouble 
by worshiping Him and entering directly into His rightful reign. After all, God had promised Messiah that He will rule all the world. Here is the temptation to grasp what we want by illicit sinful means. Unlike us, Jesus was entitled to all these things. Provision of His physical needs, acceptance by His creatures as the Messiah, and His reign over all the world. But He did not succumb to the devil's temptation that He seized them contrary to God's commandments. Thus, the temptations of Christ were worse than ours because of His greatness and His humiliation in the Incarnation. He is God of very God, eternal and all-powerful, yet He submitted Himself to live as a man under the law in obedience to His Father for the saving of His people. Christ as God has eternal, infinite power and privilege, yet He came lowly as a lamb to be slain for us. Surely all of us would do anything we could to escape the ignominy, shame, terror, and suffering that Christ willingly and obediently bore to save us. And on top of the devil's temptations, how much sinful men must have provoked Jesus to sin and error. We disbelieved Him. We mocked Him. We argued in front of Him about who would be the greatest in His kingdom. We denounced the death that He said He must suffer. Yet He remained faithful to obey His Father in everything and to finish perfectly His duty and purpose in the Incarnation to save us by dying in our place. Therefore, Christ is now our faithful High Priest who fully understands and sympathizes with our temptations and trials. He will never mock us in our failures, but He will bring us through every trial. Jesus comforts His people because He suffered being tempted like we are. We spoke of the temptation to sin that Jesus suffered, and so He sympathizes with us in the same temptations and upholds us and sustains us and intercedes for us. This is known. But all of that suffering is nothing compared to the anguish and grief that Jesus suffered when He took all our sins upon Him and was treated as guilty by a holy God in our place. The preview of this as far as Hebrews is concerned is in verse 10 of chapter 2. For it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Notice the exaltation, the entitlement, the privilege, the power in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Think about how contrary this is to the natural world. If someone's going to be a great captain of salvation, great leader unto victory, we don't account that that person needs to be made perfect through sufferings, do we? All they need to do is have the power to act on our behalf and all is well. But not so with the Lord Jesus. In a sense, the writer is suggesting that Christ is so great and so marvelous and so entitled and so privileged as of right He ought to be, for He created all things, that He's not suited to lead many sons to glory unless He has been made perfect through sufferings in His humanity. 
And sure enough, it develops. This is the case. He must be made an offering. An offering that's been tested by temptation and travail and suffering and has been shown to be perfect and without spot morally and spiritually. And He must be made perfect through suffering so that He might be a faithful high priest to really sympathize with the sufferings of His people whom He is set to redeem. But the full weight of Christ's grief isn't seen until Hebrews 5. And the contrast between the nobility and honor of Christ to be our high priest is first made clear in this chapter when the greatness and glory and promise of Christ as high priest then comes crashing down, as it were, into the sorrow and terror and weeping of the Lord Jesus at the prospect of the offering He must make. And Hebrews 5 starts out, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that He may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on those that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason thereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now we've spoken recently about the fact that the Lord Jesus doesn't need to make an offering for his own sin, for he has none. And therefore he is a superior high priest in that regard, that He comes before God always and forever spotless and perfect and pure. And therefore, we can be even more assured that His advocacy for us, His intercession on our behalf, is acceptable to a holy and righteous God because it comes from the mouth of the very Son of God who is perfect in all His ways. He's Jesus Christ the righteous. That's why He's such a great advocate for His people toward God, and yet He has suffered being tempted in His humanity so that He might be a faithful high priest for us. And no man taketh this honor upon Himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not Himself to be made an high priest. But He said unto him, Thou art My Son, this day have I begotten thee. And He saith also, in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this shows the high and lofty appointment of Christ to be our high priest. It's from the mouth of God Himself and it's recorded in antiquity, long before the Lord Jesus ever was incarnate and came into this world. And no doubt the writer of Hebrews appeals to these two texts as proof to the Jewish believers that Jesus didn't just show up one day and take this job upon Himself, nor was He appointed the job of high priest by the secular authorities or even by the religious authorities. They hated Him. They put Him to death. But know that He had been ordained of old by the very God of glory to be the priest of God for His people. And not in that normal Aaronic line, not under the covenant of Moses and the law. But outside that, after the order of Melchizedek, from the beginning, by His Father, the Lord Jesus, was made our high priest. 
And notice this word Melchizedek. We've commented on it many times. It means the king of Salem, which is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. The Lord Jesus is not only a high priest, which Melchizedek was, but He's also a ruler, one who brings peace with God, one who represents righteousness, the righteousness of God for His people and lays that righteousness upon His people we find in further readings of the Scripture. Then after this description of Christ's appointment as high priest and that it's an honor that God has placed on Him from of old, then it all comes crashing down, doesn't it, into the horror, the terror, the ignominy, the shame of being judged guilty in our place for our sins. Verse 7, Who, that is speaking of Jesus, in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now here at last in Hebrews, we are introduced to the great turmoil which all of this wrought upon our Lord Jesus in His humanity during His ministry. The prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. But does this not call to mind the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross when Jesus cried out on occasion? These texts of Scripture, which the writer of Hebrews is alluding to, bring to mind the true reality of the horror which Christ faced. No doubt it was not the fear of death. Because after all, Christ had a promise of resurrection. And He's the power to take His life up again, He told His disciples. Listen to what Brother Gill has to say about this text. That strong crying and tears, for example, he says, it is with a most vehement outcry, with a loud voice, as when on the cross which shows the weight of sin, of sorrow, and of punishment that lay upon Him, and the weakness of the human flesh, the human nature which Christ bore, unto Him that was able to save Him from death. That is a cry of prayer unto His Father, the Lord of glory, to raise Him from the dead and to deliver Him from the state of the dead, from the power of death and the grave as He did, that is, as God did, And so the Syriac version renders it, quote, to quicken him from death, unquote, to restore him from death to life. So the cries of Christ to be saved from this hour, for there to be another way if there were to be found another way. As the writer of Hebrews said, it was unto the one who was able to save him from death. But it was not to be to be saved from death until after He had suffered death, was it? Rather, it was answered, Christ's prayer was answered in the resurrection by the Father of the Son. And then Gill says of that hard-to-understand phrase, was heard in that He feared. That is, He was heard by God who was the object of His fear. 
He was always heard by Him and was carried through His sufferings and was delivered from the fear of death and was saved from the dominion and power of it being raised from the dead by His Father. So Christ is pleading with the Father not in rebellion or in disobedience, but rather in fear and in reverence towards God as His Father. Though He were a Son, the Son of God by nature, being the only begotten of the Father, having the same nature and perfections with Him, yet learned He obedience. Hill says that is obedience, of course, to all things in the law and the prophets. And Christ was particular, wasn't He, to fulfill all those things and to go out of His way to do so, but also obedience unto death. Through sufferings, He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And this He learnt, not that He was ignorant of the nature of it, nor was He destitute of an obedient disposition to death on the cross. But the meaning is He had an experience of it, an experience of obedience unto death. It wasn't a hypothetical thing with our Lord Jesus. He went through it in reality, in His body, unto the end. And it was voluntary, and it was done in our place. The Lord Jesus carried it out for us. And it is the rule and measure of our righteousness before God. And this Christ learned by the things which He suffered. From men, from devils, and from the justice of God... Christ's sonship did not exempt him from obedience and sufferings. This shows the dignity of Christ's person, that he is the Son of God. And it would be no wonder that he should learn obedience as a servant. And this shows also the great humility and condescension of Christ in obeying and suffering for us, and the strictness of divine justice against our sins laid upon him. So this is Gill's comments on Hebrews 5, 7-8. through 8. But notice the glorious result of the obedience of Christ. The glorious result of the obedience of Christ in all these things is verse 9, being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. So Christ was perfect in all His way, wasn't He? After all, He's God of very God, perfect, holy, righteous, without fault or sin or stain whatsoever. But the writer of Hebrews is stressing this point that the perfection of Christ is polished off, if you will, is completed, is finished by the suffering that He went through in order to be made perfect, to be made a perfect sacrifice, to be made a perfect great high priest for us. And because of His perfection in the suffering that He underwent, in everything, temptation, trials, troubles, and being put to death for His people and having our sins laid on Him, and all those things He was made perfect, and therefore, and only therefore, He becomes the author of eternal salvation to all that obey Him. Jesus made perfect by the suffering, 
not just the temptations that we spoke of recently, but overwhelmingly by the suffering on the cross, which He wept and prayed over, the load of sin laid upon Him, which He faithfully bore and endured the wrath we ought to have received for eternity. This is the pinnacle of the sufferings that makes our Lord Jesus perfect to save us. It is how He became the author of eternal salvation for us. And I wonder if you've noticed how the suffering of Jesus proves completely the sinlessness of the offering. We think of the lambs that were slain. And while they were perfect physically, they didn't have a blemish or a spot or a broken leg, as the case might be. Nevertheless, we all grasp that they had no moral or spiritual perfection in them, for they were but dumb animals. And furthermore, they met their fate in a certain quietness because they didn't know what was about to befall them. Because after all, they're very foolish and ignorant beasts and generally gentle and generally, for the most part, obedient. But even if a sheep had been brought to be slaughtered as a sacrifice under the old covenant, it wouldn't have really mattered whether he was a cantankerous sheep or whether he was wont to find ways to escape the fences and wander off into the brambles. All that mattered was that he be physically fit. Because we all understand that lambs don't have any moral capacity. And so that was always the source of the mismatch that the offering should have no moral or spiritual perfection that was being offered in the place of sinners who had no moral or physical perfection. Not because they were beasts, but because they were sinful men. And so the Lord Jesus, of course, His perfection is moral and spiritual. But have you noticed that through all this temptation, all these trials, the sorrows, the torments in Gethsemane and on the cross, they all stood to test the offering of Christ, didn't they? Is this sacrifice really sinless? Or is it Merely that the Lord Jesus never, never really had a chance to sin, and so we kind of caught us, a, caught us one in the state of perfection. No, the Scriptures teach us that He was actively obedient in all things, and that He was sinless in all things, and that even when He was tested and tried beyond all measure as far as we're concerned, in matters far too great to implicate us, matters of the reign, the kingdom, creative power, promises of God, the Messiah that cannot be broken, and all those things he was tempted, and he didn't sin, thereby proving that his sacrifice is a sinless offering, is a perfect offering. It is as the analogy of pinning up the lamb for a couple of days of inspection to make sure that it hasn't come down with any blemish or any illness. The Lord Jesus all through His ministry was under inspection, you see. The quality, the value of His sacrifice was being tested by His Father, by the world, by the devil, 
by himself, was being tested and proven that sure enough, it is a sinless, a morally pure and spiritually pure sacrifice. It was a tested offering and was tested by these troubles and these temptations which Christ went through. And it's the reason that He is the author of eternal salvation. Because His sacrifice is morally and ethically pure and worthy to be substituted in the place of the unjust sinners whom He saves. Now, the two instances in the Gospels that we recall, one text we read this morning, the incident of Christ praying and weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you will remember that it says, He knelt down and prayed at Luke 22, verse 42, saying, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thine be done. There appeared an angel unto Him from heaven, strengthening Him, and being in an agony, He prayed more earnestly. And His sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then He arose up from prayer. Now this text is a description of the agonies of Christ at the prospect of being made a sacrifice for sin. Most commentators agree that this agony was because of the load of guilt and sin to be laid upon Jesus at Calvary and His contemplation of it. It was so detestable to Him to be associated personally with sin, to be treated as guilty, to to be made to bear the sin of all of His people all at once when He had done nothing wrong and then to be judged by it, judged for it, the perfect spotless Lamb of God without a taint of sin in Him at all, now to be made sin for us. You remember when the lambs were taken to be sacrificed, they didn't know what was about to happen to them. And they didn't understand that there was going to be a picture of God's wrath against the sin of their offerer that would fall on them instead. So they had no dread or contemplation of what it meant to be made a sacrifice in the place of someone else. And they had no concept or ability to receive by imputation the sin of the Lord's people, but that was not so of the Lord Jesus. He was aware of His purpose. He was fully aware of the sin of His people. He knew it all not only because He's God who knows all things, but also because He had experienced it, had viewed it, had seen it, had lived amongst it, was personally aware in His body the trouble and the rebellion and the disobedience and the wrath that must be to fall upon the people that He would redeem. And so He was to be made sin for us, He who knew no sin. And such a blow He suffered for us by undergoing that horrible thing. Such humiliation to be numbered to be numbered with the transgressors. You know, sometimes some of us have been falsely accused of crimes and even though we're innocent, it hurts and it stings and it's depressing and it's worrying. And even if we're finally acquitted and everybody acknowledges we did nothing wrong, nevertheless, there is a shame to it, isn't there? 
of course, the Lord Jesus, as it were, was falsely accused, but not really because He readily accepted our sins upon Himself as if they were His own and was treated as guilty in our place and was punished for it. And nothing we experience can begin to compare with the agony that Jesus felt at being made sin for us and being treated as guilty by His Father. And yet He obeyed even to the death of the cross. We would have run away, wouldn't we? We would have run away from this awful end to things. And you know, the Lord Jesus was tempted to run away. By being tempted to run away, I mean the thought came to mind that this could all be avoided. That this could all be left behind. And yet the Lord Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. He submitted Himself to what must befall Him according to the counsels of God from eternity past. And He always knew that He would, and yet in His humanity, this idea rose to the surface. We would run away, but Christ is more like the lambs. They could not run away, could they? They were forced to the sacrificial altar. The Lord Jesus was forced by His moral, ethical duty. And I'm not saying it was a violent force or a physical force. He submitted Himself to it. He undertook to take our sins upon Himself and die for us. But His perfection, His suffering under temptation, and His unwillingness to sin in any way against His Father or against His people served as a moral compulsion to Him to obey and to do what He must do. And so He could not, like us, run away from such a duty in a similar way that the lambs could not. And then in Mark 15, we read that passage last Lord's Day. The passage that describes the humiliation of Christ on the, on the cross and how He was stripped naked and how He was beaten beyond identification and had the crowns pressed upon His brow and how He was mocked and shamed by the Romans and by the Jewish leaders and by the crowd that day and by Herod, and how he was betrayed by his own people to the Romans and betrayed by the Roman governor, contrary to justice, to the agonizing death of the cross. And they mocked him there and misquoted him and told him he should save himself and come down from the cross, and then claimed he couldn't save himself. They thought that Jesus couldn't come down off the cross if he wanted to. They thought that he was powerless. They thought that the violence and force of the Roman guards was what compelled him to be there. They were completely wrong, weren't they? It was the requirement that was placed upon him by his father, which he readily took upon himself to finish the sacrifice in the place ordained that he might be able to save His people. And the thieves that were there with Him, they reviled Him. They spit in His face. But then at verse 33, it says, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord Jesus, to save us, He must not save Himself, and yet He experienced this forsakenness of Himself from God. And we've preached on that subject many times. And it doesn't mean that God wasn't present, that God didn't see, that God hated the Lord Jesus for being made sin for us. None of that at all is what that means. It means that God left the Lord Jesus to be punished, to be judged, to be put to death. That He would not step in and deliver Him at that time because Christ was accomplishing the very work which the Father had laid upon Him and which the Son had agreed to perform. And it recalls Psalm 22 and all the humiliation and degradation of that treatment. The psalm begins with those very words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? By which the Lord Jesus lays claim to that psalm and to those promises and to the gory details of that psalm as being applied to Himself. And as you know, there are prophetic elements of that psalm that match perfectly what happened to the Lord Jesus on the cross. So the identification or the appropriation by Christ of Psalm 22 is perfectly justified. And yet, once again, it portrays, does it not, this agony of the suffering which was laid on Jesus more than any human could bear. Yet what happened to Jesus here was far worse than even what was described in Psalm 22, wasn't it? The psalmist only got a little slight picture of the trouble that Jesus had, mostly that He was made to bear our sins, to be left by His Father to wrath and judgment for sin that He had not Himself committed, but which were laid upon Him. Now, Christ's prayers were answered. And this is true seen in His resurrection after the crucifixion. They're seen in the last part of Psalm 22 when the psalmist says that thou hast not abhorred, God has not abhorred the suffering or the affliction of the afflicted. But when he cried, he heard. And so it is true. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 5 says that God heard Christ and answered Christ when he cried out with strong tears and weeping. Christ's prayers were answered when God raised him in victory from the dead. And it turns out that God had not despised the suffering of Jesus for our sins. God accepted His sacrifice for our sin. Christ's obedience to death, bearing our crimes and being punished for them, brought about our salvation. His sacrifice is pleasing to God. It is a sweet-smelling savor to God. There is no rejection of Christ by God or of His sacrifice, but rather... God is well pleased and accepts that sacrifice as full satisfaction for the crimes of His people. Christ's sacrifice is never rejected by God in any way. And in all of this you see what Christ suffered and was tempted with far exceeds 
anything we suffer. That's what makes Him our perfect Savior and perfect High Priest. When we think in our trials that Jesus couldn't possibly know our temptation or trials, think on the sore temptation He faced to walk away from us, to reject the cross, to refuse to suffer God's wrath for our sins. Christ's temptation is documented in these texts, and yet He endured the cross, despising the shame for us. One final thought. The agony and terror of temptation that Christ faced in these instances is something that His people will never have to face. Because in our place, our Lord Jesus took them all away upon Himself so that we might be set free from them forever. So you see that the promise that Christ is a faithful high priest in whom we might find grace to help in time of need because He suffered being tempted. He's able to succor them that are tempted because He sympathizes with us There is a sense in which at the highest level what the Lord Jesus has done for us has taken away any opportunity that we might have to suffer what He suffered in our place. He's taken away the wrath. He's made peace with us. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've been given And that's all the way back to the beginning of the series, isn't it? That the comfort that God promises primarily and chiefly is the taking away of our sin, the end of wrath, the end of judgment by the sacrifice of Jesus and by His great high priesthood for us. Those who trust in Jesus will never be faced with God's wrath for our sins like Jesus was. And here again, we come to recognize that His suffering being tempted was far greater than anything that we have to face. No wonder our God is the God of all comforts to those who call upon Him. He openly displayed the transfer of what we are due off onto His dear beloved Son. He made a perfect salvation by His sufferings for us. And it reminds us of the words of that favorite hymn that we love so well. The cross, the cross, the blood-stained cross, the cross of Christ I see. It tells me of that precious blood that once was shed for me. The wrath, the wrath, the awful wrath that Jesus felt for me when bearing my sin's heavy load, He died on Calvary. But Jesus lives. The Savior lives. In heaven He pleads for me. And boldly I approach to God. His blood, my only plea. He comes, He comes. The Savior comes. Who bled and died for me. Then will I sing with rapture sing when gazing, Lord, on Thee. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table that pictures this offering for sin which Christ was faithful to complete on behalf of His people. O God, our Father, we rejoice in the offering of Your Son. We rejoice in the fact that He suffered being tempted and that His temptation and suffering in the face of taking on our crimes upon Himself and being judged was a torment to Him 
and a terror to him, and yet he still obediently went to death, showing beyond all doubt that he is a perfect sacrifice, morally and spiritually clean and pure for us. And we thank you that he left us this bread by which we might remember his real body that one day was torn cruelly on the cross and mutilated and made an offering, made a sacrifice for us there at Calvary. And Lord, we thank You that You've brought us together this Lord's Day to remember what Jesus did and to celebrate what He told us to celebrate all those years ago. That we might never forget the basis upon which our eternal salvation rests and that we might always be reminded to give thanks to You for delivering Him up and thanks to our Lord Jesus for dying for us and in our place and so perfectly as to satisfy all that You require. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 70 in the black book. Jesus, Thou alone art worthy, ceaseless praises to receive. For Thy love and grace and goodness rise or all our thoughts conceive. Number 70.